You're listening to the podcast of Shady Grove Presbyterian Church. The purpose of this podcast is to help you grow in your walk with Christ and apply His Word to your life. My name is Ben Hine, and I am one of the pastors here at Shady Grove. And I'm joined by three other guests this morning. On my right is Senior Pastor Charlie Bale. You know where I got your introduction from, Charlie? No. Growing up in South Dakota, we were by default uh, Minnesota Twins fans. And Kirby Puckett, whenever he would come to the plate, mm-hmm. Kirby Puckett. Yeah. That's what I. That's what I went to for you. Cool. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank All you. right. I also have uh, Tammy Jones here, the wonderful Tammy Jones. We'll be hearing more from her this morning as well in, as in episode two. We're going to hear more of her story and how she uses her teaching gifts in the church and looking forward to that. Also on my left, we have Becca Locos, who is our um, youth assistant and administrative assistant. Uh, we are also helping Becca um, through seminary at Westminster pursue a counseling degree. And so we're going to hear more from her in a minute about her testimony and uh, about uh, pursuing a seminary degree and what that has been like for her. Uh, Really excited. This is the first episode of our podcast. Look at us. In 2020, we have a podcast. You know, Charlie, you always say we won't be the hip church, but I'm feeling pretty hip right now. I'm not not sure I would would say that I'm feeling hip hop. Good. But I I would say I'm feeling hip this morning. Are you feeling hip? Yeah. This is exciting. (laughs) It feels like all of our plans got radically derailed this year. And uh, if you'd have said at the beginning of last year that, hey, you're going to be doing a podcast around a table. Yeah. I'd have said, really? Like, so many things are different. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, definitely one of the reasons why um, we're doing this podcast is obviously we want to continue doing uh, teaching for our church and our church members and uh, equipping people, but obviously it's hard. We can't be together in person the way we want to be right now. And um, Zoom uh, can do some of it, but it's been a little bit difficult to do Zoom. Um, we've seen, you know, group start and then kind of fade out. Uh, Tammy, I know that you recently started mm-hmm. a Zoom uh, thing on Tuesday nights. How has yeah. that been with uh, the women in the church? I am surprised at how well it's gone. I didn't know if there would be four or 40. Sometimes there's four. Sometimes yeah. there's nine. There has not been the same group ever. And yet we always get into a really good discussion. It's um, one of the things they expressed was that it's just really nice to hang out mm-hmm. and not necessarily have an agenda. So we just we just hang out and That's great. tell stories. We tell jokes. We talk about what we're reading, you know, share prayer requests. It's, yeah. it's been a uh, really great. good time yeah. together. That's great. Um, we also started um, a Sunday night uh, um, Puritans class, which I heard the first week went really well. So the second week is tomorrow. Yeah. So that's great. Uh, there's a couple other, I think, circle of friends is starting back up over Zoom and some other things going on over Zoom. But we just hope that this podcast can be a good compliment, especially we know, you know, there's a lot of people who maybe uh, are craving that fellowship over Zoom, but there's also a number of people who... Um, are working more than they ever have are on zoom calls all day and the idea of getting on zoom at night is difficult so we're just hoping this podcast can uh you know you're mowing the lawn you're on your way to get groceries whatever the case may be that you can tune in and listen here with us uh well becca we want to hear from you a little bit you know one of the purposes of this podcast is not just to teach on the gospel of mark which we're going to get to uh here in a minute but also to hear from people in our church and to be encouraged by testimonies and uh, what the Lord is doing um, in your life. And so, Becca, uh, you grew up in the church, right? Yes, I did. <laughs> you grew up here at Shady Grove. So tell us a little bit about your story of coming to know the Lord um, here at Shady Grove. Yeah, so um, I did grow up going here since I've been here since I was uh, five, I think. Um, but uh, my parents were actually newly Christian. When I was baptized, my parents and both my older siblings were baptized. I was only a few months old. Um, but yeah, faith was just a part of everyday life. Um, I don't have like a clear aha now I'm a Christian moment. Um, but I, when I was around eight, after my grandma had passed away, I remember talking to my dad, like, how do you know that someone's going to go to heaven? And we talked about how we're all sinners. Um, just kind of like the classic 
you're a sinner in need of a savior and Jesus came um, and died for you. And so if you trust in him, um, he's given you eternal life. And so I did, I prayed with him then, but I would say that my faith wasn't really my own until I was in middle school. And um, I started to make friends here at the church once I joined youth group. So I enjoyed coming and I started to listen a little bit more. Um, and that's just, I'm not sure what exactly happened, but that's when all of a sudden I wanted to learn more and I wanted my faith to be my own. And so, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's great. Well, even though that's more of a, you know, you called it a classic story, it's no less of a miracle, uh, that, uh, the Lord gives us new life. So that's great. Um, and so you grew up in the church, you went to college, came back, started working, uh, here at the church doing, um, administrative assistant work part-time and then assisting in youth. Uh, but really, we're uh, also excited that you're pursuing a seminary degree at Westminster uh, Theological Seminary. And so um, what had led you to pursuing a seminary degree uh, after college? Yeah, well, if you asked me all the way up like through my junior year, I never would have expected to be in seminary. Now, I didn't even think of it. it never crossed my mind as a possibility of something I could do. Um but I was interested in pursuing counseling. I was a history major, so I was thinking that, oh, I'll get a job afterwards. Um, I'll pursue a degree in counseling. But in my own experience, I had received a lot of good counseling, but faith wasn't really a part of it. So I was also interested um, in pursuing a counseling degree and then integrating faith more directly into that. And I just didn't really realize that you could go to seminary for a degree that does just that. Um, so once um, I kind of was introduced to that idea, um, I looked more into the programs and it was pretty much just what I felt led to do. Um, and so here I am. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Um, so one of the things, you know, and I encountered this a lot when I was in seminary, uh, sometimes in the church, there can be uh, maybe a negative or cold attitude towards seminary. And sometimes you hear this joke uh, that seminary is a cemetery and, you know, uh, you know, young men and women go there with this passion for the Lord, but then they come out all academic and not really in touch, not, not really having like spiritual vitality and, and all of that. So um, that at all, that wasn't at all my experience. You know, my faith was incredibly enriched in my time in seminary. Uh, so how about you? How, how have you seen uh, God at work? in your life uh, during your seminary studies? Yeah, I would say that probably the exact opposite would be true for me so far. I've found that the more that I've spent time, like, yes, it's my responsibility as a student to be learning and digging into God's word and doing all of that. Um, my desire to do that and to understand more and to learn more has just grown um, with the opportunity to do that. Um, but I would say, um, the main way that I've been pushed to grow is um, being more open with people about the struggles I do have. So like in the counseling courses I'm um, taking, I'm obviously learning how to walk with somebody else through their struggles and, and through their sin um, and how to apply the gospel really practically for that. And so for me, um, I've had to find some good friends to help keep me accountable and to make sure that I'm not just doing this for other people, but I'm actually mm. being very practical in my own life. Yeah, Amen. that's great. And I've really just enjoyed, um, you know, working with you here at the church, talking with you about different things, but then having you be a part of the young adults group and seeing your faith grow, I think, um, over the last couple of years and the, the new insights you share in the young adults group has been really encouraging. So uh, really grateful for your commitment to the church and these studies and then what God is doing in your life, I think is just really uh, fun to see. Um, so how do you desire to serve the church? I know uh, we've talked about that a little bit. Maybe you're not really sure, but you know, where do you feel like the Lord is leading you uh, in serving his church after you graduate? Yeah, so I'm not very sure. I've been thinking about it more and more as I get farther along. Um, and I, I would love working actually within the church. So I would love to be able to find a position um, where I'd be full time um, in the church and maybe not just offering counseling. So I think there's no way once you learn the skills, um, there's no way to not interact with people using that counseling. And I want to, it may be somewhat formally sometimes, um, but I would, yeah, I would like to have a formal leadership role in the church and I like to work with, I'm interested in counseling adolescents. And so something in the area of youth ministry, somewhat similar yeah. to what I'm doing now, um, it seems like a good fit. Yeah. So. 
Well, that's great. Well, um, I know it's not always what gets you super jazzed, but we've been really grateful about all the, I mean, pretty much you're kind of the duct tape holding a lot of things in our church together right now. Um, whether it's the Sunday worship online or even this podcast and so many other things, you're behind the scenes, um, figuring out new technology that, you know, uh, kind of like, you know, Charlie said earlier, like if you had told him being of the year, we're doing a podcast, he would have laughed at you. And I think same thing a year ago, if we would have said to Becca that you're going to have all these new skills in a year, you probably would have laughed, but <laughs> here you are. So we're really grateful uh, for all that you're doing for our church. Uh, so last question, you know, we're going to be getting into the gospel of Mark here. Uh, we're going to be talking about chapter one in this episode of the podcast. Uh, but just big picture, why do you think it is important for Christians to study the gospel of Mark today? Um, I think what strikes me most as I've been reading through it is just how active um, the gospel is and how much it's Jesus is here now and he's at work and he's inaugurated his kingdom and he's bringing um, redemption and that process has already started. And so, yes, this is a story about what Jesus did in the past, um, but he's still that same power um, is at work today. And so that's just something that I've been meditating on is that through this gospel, um, we're seeing how Jesus is at work, the compassion and the authority that he has, and he's still doing that today. Yeah. Different means, so. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's definitely one of the unique characteristics of the Gospel of Mark is just how active it is, um, how fast moving it is. And um, uh, I think, you know, for me personally, I, I love the Gospel of Mark. It might be my favorite gospel uh, just because we get so much uh, kind of hands on with Jesus, mm -hmm. right? Um, and that really, uh, it always, uh, I always enjoy that reading the gospel of Mark. So um, let me just give a quick introduction for those listening to the gospel of Mark uh, and just explain a couple things that maybe make Mark stand out or just uh, explain uh, the author of the gospel as well as the date and the context he was writing to. Uh, so the gospel of Mark, um, this gospel gives us no indication in the letter who wrote it. Uh, so the letter itself is anonymous, but the earliest of tradition tells us that it was Mark, John Mark, uh, who we see in Acts and mentioned in, in some of the um, epistles. Um, Mark was not an apostle, but as far as we know, appears to have been uh, traveling close with Peter. Uh, and then, of course, we see in Acts that he traveled with uh, Paul and Barnabas and so on. So very active in the early church. Mark, uh, the earliest tradition uh, of this gospel is that Mark was said to have written very accurately and that he endeavored to make no false statements. That was how they described Mark's authorship of this gospel. Um, so we see early on, uh, as early as the second century, this, this tradition being corroborated very widely um, that Mark is the author of this gospel. And I think what should be encouraging to us about that is, you know, we have this incident in the book of Acts where, you know, Mark leaves this missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas. And Paul, at least, we're led to believe um, that maybe Mark didn't have the most legitimate of reasons. Paul maybe thinks that uh, John Mark was afraid or uh, that he just uh, wasn't committed to the mission anymore. And so he abandoned it. And so Paul was sort of put off by that. And so here we have this, this guy who maybe had abandoned in an earlier missionary journey, um, uh, someone who probably didn't always get it right, someone who probably feared and so on. And yet uh, God still used him to write one of the four uh, gospel letters, right? And so I think that's really encouraging to us, you know, is uh, all of the authors and characters of the Bible other than Jesus are these flawed characters, right? Um, but God still uses them to accomplish his purposes. And so we can be confident that he's going to use us as well. Uh, Mark's gospel was probably written in the mid uh, 60s of the first century. Uh, this would align with external as well as internal evidence um, in the letter. There's uh, several explicit as well as veiled references in Mark that tell us his audience was likely facing suffering and persecution. Uh, Jesus is emphasized as the suffering son of God, and his disciples are told that they will suffer for following him. Um, Mark's indication in chapter one, which we're going to see in a moment, that Jesus went out to the wilderness among the wild animals uh, seems to be Mark's way of early on. Uh, helping these Christians identify with Jesus because they were themselves being thrown to wild animals uh, under uh, Roman persecution. Um, so Jesus, uh, we see in the Gospel of Mark, is a Savior who identifies uh, with the suffering of his people. 
Uh, as far as his audience, there's little doubt that Mark was writing for Gentile, so non-Jewish Christians, probably Roman Christians in particular, who were likely facing this suffering and persecution um, under Nero. So uh, some of you know from history that in uh, 64 AD, there was a big fire in Rome and uh, they were looking for someone to blame. Some thought that maybe Nero had done it on purpose and set the fire on purpose. And so uh, the Christians made the scapegoat. And so everyone blamed the Christians, which started a wave of Christian persecution. Uh, and so that's likely the context that Mark was writing into. Uh, Mark, you know that he's writing for Gentiles because he quotes very infrequently from the Old Testament. You don't find many explicit Old Testament quotes. Um, he explains Jewish customs that would have been unfamiliar to his Gentile readers. He translates Aramaic and Hebrew phrases to the Greek equivalents and so on. So it appears that he's writing to a uh, primarily Gentile, non-Jewish um, audience, probably in Rome. So does anyone want to add anything to that um, background of Mark before we jump in? When do you when do you think it, it was written? Do you have a... I, I think um, mid-60s, probably, like somewhere between 64 and 70. Um, and then there's, you know, of course, there's debate on which of the Gospels was written first. I tend to think Mark was probably written first. Um, so you'd have to align that with whatever the dates for Matthew and Luke are. What, what are your thoughts on that, Charlie? I just was reading a little bit that it might have even been sooner, like yeah. mid, even mid-50s. Um, but... It's hard to say. Yeah. But it had been, it was the first gospel written since Malachi. Yeah. So one of the notes I made was it's like 460 years. Yeah. So 460 years ago, Elizabeth I was on the throne in England. Yeah. So that gives you a picture of how wow. long, how much time has passed since they've heard a prophet. So yeah. when John comes on the scene. Right. And Mark's recording it, it's, um, yeah, it's. It has been a while. Yeah. 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 The, the, the tradition, the earlier traditions of uh, the church fathers was that Matthew was the first gospel written. And then it was, I think, in the 19th and 20th century where it became more prominent. Um, this is falling under two source theory, you know, that Matthew and Luke used Mark and possibly this mm -hmm. document known as Q. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, so there's some debate as to what was, I, I tend to think that Mark was the earliest. It does seem that Matthew and Luke borrowed extensively um, from, from Mark because they have so much in common with Mark, but, um, it could be another book, but yeah, definitely probably very early and perhaps the earliest, uh, of the gospel letters. So, um, and I think most people think there's a lot of, um, uh, Peter's influence here yeah. that mm -hmm. Mark was a disciple. Some people feel, think that Peter led Mark to faith and, um, they were together in Rome and it, it's likely that Peter would have been telling all of these stories and John or John Mark wrote them down for us. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, that's one that I was having this morning is, you know, uh, uh, with Mark kind of really relating to the suffering of his audience, you know, and of course Peter did as well. And his, we see in his epistles writing to the elect exiles, right. And trying to give them comfort in the midst of suffering. And I almost wondered if that's some of Peter's influence on Mark, uh, you know, uh, in his letter, um, wanting to really minister pastorally um, to the suffering uh, of his audience. So um, well, let's jump into chapter one here. So what uh, do you all think are some of the unique themes of the gospel of Mark that we start to see here early on in uh, chapter one? Ladies first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's, start, let's start with you, Becca. Okay. Um, well, what jumps out right away to me was the immediately, um, I think I counted like 10 plus one at once. So um, you have a very quick succession um, of events. Yeah, for sure. I have a filter in my um, electronic Bible where all the immediately's in Mark have an exclamation point after them. So I, it like jumps out to me and they're just, they're just everywhere. Um, yeah, some other themes. Tammy, what do you have? The kingdom of God. I mean, it's... It's over and over. Uh, John's talking about it. Jesus is bringing it. And John is telling us that Jesus is bringing it. And then Jesus tells us he brings it himself in, um, in verse 14. Uh, and it, I found it in the Message Bible, which I know, um, yeah, it's very free. But it basically, time's up. God's kingdom is here. Change your life and believe the message. Yeah. And that's kind of, that's a great summary to me. That's, that's a good theme for the, you know, what, 
what we hear over and over again with yeah. the immediately, you know, yeah. time's up like right yeah. now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some, some would say, and I would agree that verses 14 and 15 are like the thesis of the gospel of Mark, right? Like that's, that's kind of like the main point is the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why it's so fast paced, you know, uh, this pressing message of Jesus. But, you know, another theme that kind of is, um, I skipped over is that Jesus is the son of God. Yeah. And that, that he, uh, Mark establishes early in the first verse. Yeah. <laughs> that was one of the things I was going to comment as to just the deity of Jesus is very strong in Mark. And he's often, um, contrasted like the gospel of John is so much more about the deity, but Mark is more the suffering servant presented the son of man. But even the son of man ties back to Daniel seven. And, mm-hmm. um, but the very beginning of the gospel is, is the, and as you imagine the people that would have, um, received the gospel of Mark, it, it, they would have heard it. It would have been in a big scroll and they would have stood and read the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when I try to take in a, a, a gospel, I want to look at the whole, I always look for bookends like Matthew begins with Emmanuel, God with us, and then ends with, I'm with you always. Okay, bookends. Gospel of John, you know, the word was with God, the word the word was God. And then it ends with, or the climax is Thomas saying, my Lord and my God. Well, here you have the beginning is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then oh. as soon as Jesus dies and breathes his last breath, the Roman centurion, who most people think he's writing to Romans, yeah. cries out, truly this was the Son of God. Yeah. And it's not a son of God, it's the son of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the very beginning of this message where Mark just skips over all of the, you know, the birth narratives, uh, the angels coming and all of the shepherds and all that stuff. He just gets right to John the Baptist. But what he quotes from are these two amazing passages where he quotes from Malachi 3 and then he quotes from uh, Isaiah 40. And both of those are just these power packed statements of saying who this front runner is. And he says about John or Isaiah 40, um, uh, verse three says, uh, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, prepare the way of Yahweh, make straight in the desert, a highway for our God. So the very one that John is saying mm-hmm. he's come to prepare the way for is God, is Yahweh. And he says the glory, of, and he says about him, you know, okay, every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. Like the king is coming. We've got to make a level place for him so the chariot can ride nicely mm-hmm. and the horse, and we're going to make it good. And uh, he says, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. Mm-hmm. So John has come to prepare to talk about the glory of Yahweh. And so whenever the Jehovah Witnesses come to my door, this is the first verse that I try to show them is, if you would be a Jehovah Witness, then I'd really like you to see that Jesus is Jehovah. Yeah. And that's pretty strong, Yeah, uh, the very first verses of Mark. Yeah, and that's something even uh, once we get uh, towards the end of chapter one and into chapter two, you know, as the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders begins, you know, is in chapter, beginning of chapter two is, you know, claiming the authority to forgive sins, right? Um, and then uh, getting to the end of chapter two with being Lord over the Sabbath, you're seeing these very clear son of God, divine claims, which are the cause of much conflict uh, very early on in the gospel of Mark. Mm. Um, another big thing I think that you see, especially because of uh, Mark's audience, is uh, this theme of faith. And there seem to be two different responses uh, of faith uh, for Jesus. So on the one hand, you have a number of people um, displaying insights and acts of faith that faith that are quite remarkable. And we see that like with the leper in uh, verses 40 to 42 of chapter one. And this is not unlike the faith of uh, the paralytic and his friends in uh, chapter two. And then of course you have the hemorrhaging woman in chapter five, the Syrophoenician woman in chapter seven, the father of the epileptic son. I think also in chapter seven, the blind man in chapter 10, the penniless woman in chapter 12, uh, the woman who anoints Jesus in chapter 14 and the centurion at the cross in chapter 15, right? And these individuals demonstrate this great resolve and uh, sacrifice and, and great faith. But on the other hand, you have um, 
this, uh, see, th those of you would think would have a faith advantage. So such as Jesus's family in chapter three, his hometown in chapter six, or, you know, the religious experts throughout the book of Mark. Uh, and they're often the most resistant to Jesus and his message. Right. And so even, uh, the faith response of his inner circle with the, with the 12 is often suspect. Right. And so for insiders, we see for religious insiders, faith comes slowly. Um, and Mark clearly wants to demonstrate Jesus's heart, uh, for outsiders. And so, even Jesus is frequently portrayed as an outsider in verse 45, right? He goes outside um, the villages. And so um, once again, we see, you know, religious outsiders are quick to believe and uh, insiders are often those who are resistant or slow to faith. I wonder, you know, with that theme in particular, what do you think that theme in the gospel of Mark, what's the, really the message of that to us today um, when we see, religious insiders being kind of slow to faith or being resistant, but seeing outsiders so quick um, to believe what, what do you think maybe that teaches us today? To look in the mirror. Yeah. We're often the ones that are slow to get it. And uh, so it's a good, it should be humbling to us. Um, you know, just reading this afresh, I was struck by, the, just the connection of Jesus touching a leper. Yeah. You know, I mean, a leper mm -hmm. saying, if, if you're willing, you can make me clean. You know, it's such a humble plea. And Jesus not only saying, I'm willing, but he reaches out and he touches this leper. And it's really, I think, meant to be really a big picture of God has come in the flesh and he's entered into our world and we're all lepers spiritually yeah. and he touches people and makes them whole and it's just the whole big picture of his incarnation the big picture of what he's doing of making things right and bringing in the kingdom and but it's to sinners and then the next passage you know there's he says he has the power to authority to forgive sins and then they're saying well why do you why does your why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? And he's saying, that's who I came for. He came yeah. for us. Yeah. Yeah. So part of that makes me, reminds me that I don't always know what God's up to. Yeah. And I need to just hush my mouth and keep my judgments to myself. Yeah. Because um, I could see myself saying, why is he over there with them? Yeah. You know, them. Like they are some somehow different than me. Right. Um, and I place myself way up here uh, and put them, you know, down there. And, and it surprises me that Jesus isn't up here with me. Yeah. But that's just shows my pride, my my carnality, my self-centeredness and my um, abundant uh, confidence in my own opinion, which obviously Jesus, you know, he says um, when Peter says everybody is looking for you. Mm -hmm. And Jesus says, well, it's not what I was, you know, I didn't come for everybody, basically, right. in verse 38. Yeah. So it just yeah. reminds me that God's plans are so much bigger and yeah. better than my, you know, understanding. Yeah. Becca, you have anything to add on that? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think one thing that just um, jumped into my head that uh, is a quote that has always stuck with me is from... Um, uh, Tim Keller's Prodigal God, um, which is, you know, a book on um, the parable of the prodigal son in uh, Luke chapter 15. And one thing he says in there is something to the extent of, you know, if um, the Jesus we proclaim, if the message we proclaim isn't attracting the same kind of people that Jesus attracted, then either we're not, either we're not preaching the full Jesus or we've put something in the way to keep people from getting to Jesus. And, that, and, and that's always been very like convicting to me because clearly you know, clearly Jesus offended people, but for the most part, he offended religious insiders, right? It was the tax collectors and sinners that were drawn to him. Mm -hmm. And so really wanting to kind of, I always ask myself like this question of, um, in what ways am I seeing like in the Jesus that I proclaim, am I seeing outsiders, skeptics, you know, sinners, uh, coming to be drawn to this Jesus, right? Or is there something about me or the way I do things that's repelling, uh, people away from him? So, uh, yeah, a lot to think about in the big big picture themes of the Gospel of Mark. So uh, we were talking a little bit about John the Baptist. 
Uh, and, and Charlie, you already brought this up. And so let's see if there's anything to add to this. But in uh, verse three, he quotes um, from uh, is it Malachi and then mm-hmm. Isaiah 40, uh, saying that it's his job to prepare the way for the Lord. And so in what ways do we see John the Baptist preparing people for Jesus's coming and for his ministry? Becca, we'll start with you. Yeah. Um, well, I guess he's he's starting with the same call that Jesus has, um, a call for them to repent um, mm-hmm. and receive forgiveness. And um, I guess I actually kind of have a question, um, and that's just he's baptizing people, but where did that idea come from? Like, you don't hear anything about baptism in the Old Testament, and then I just didn't really think about, like, oh, he's baptizing before yeah. That's a great question. <laughs> baptism happened. Waiting for Ben's answer. No, I, Charlie, you're you're really enthusiastic, so I want to hear Charlie's answer on this. Well, interestingly, we're not really sure. I mean, it, it, the idea of proselytes and Gentile converts would have to be baptized to convert. But uh, just listen to Kevin DeYoung on this. Is he's was wonderful in his message. He's a really good preacher. But he was just saying. We're not really sure. Maybe it's they call him John the Baptizer, like mm-hmm. John the Baptist. It's not like anybody was ever else doing this. That's why he got the title, John the Baptist, because nobody else is, is baptizing. Like today, everybody's baptizing. But that was his way to symbolize the need for repentance. Now, what I really focused in on on this passage that I just hadn't really been drawn to before or seen is just the emphasis on the wilderness mm-hmm. and that and it was in the Jordan because the people of God what we're seeing is the second exodus and there's really a lot of biblical theology that's here that Jesus is it, Mark is showing us that Jesus is prophet priest and king mm-hmm. and that he is the prophet who Uh, is uh, proclaiming the message, Um, but he's also, uh, just as Elijah went into the wilderness and Elijah was taken care of in the wilderness, well, Jesus is going to be thrust out into the wilderness as soon as he begins his ministry, and it's the same word for driving out demons. Jesus is sent out there, but he's also, we see that he's the priest because this baptism for repentance of sins at the Jordan was symbolic that the, that the judgment of God was on Israel and they had been sent into the wilderness. So even going into the wilderness for 40 years was a judgment. And Jesus is in the wilderness and for 40 days. And it's this second exodus and now he's going to come forth as gold, as one who doesn't sin, but he's receiving the judgment that even with his baptism and being anointed, it's the, I'm willing to accept I'm going to be the Israel of one, but I'm going to accept the penalties that Israel has deserved. But then we also see, obviously, that he's the king. I mean, we see he announces the Mm -hmm. kingdom has come. And so he's all three. He's going to come to us. And as this book opens up, we should just be looking to see how is he prophet, priest, and king as this book goes on. Yeah. Yeah, I... um... You know, I, I think uh, clearly it, it appears to be that baptism may have been something since crowds were coming may have been at least loosely familiar with. And I think there's some maybe uh, evidence of it, was, it happening in rabbinic, you know, Second Temple Judaism kind of thing, but not really sure where it came from or um, or why. Uh, but the idea of washing, right, ritual washing seems to be something loosely familiar to people. Uh, and then, of course, you know, we know that. Um, as, as the story goes along, we see in the book of Acts, you know, we run into people who only know the baptism of John, right? But don't know mm. um, uh, being baptized, uh, the baptism of Jesus, which we see him commissioning and, of course, the Great Commission, Matthew 28. So, um, yeah, I, I was struck by the connection between um, John proclaiming a baptism for the forgiveness of sins and then, of course, uh, Jesus coming and, you know, declaring the kingdom of God, repent and believe the gospel. Um, so I think what's really striking then, um, is John, the baptizer preparing the way of the Lord baptizes the Lord. Right. And so Jesus comes, he gets baptized. So in verse eight, um, John says though, that Jesus will baptize with the Holy spirit. 
Uh, but then he baptizes Jesus with water in verses 9 through 13. And then we have this amazing uh, scene where um, uh, he's anointed you know, with the Holy Spirit. And then the, the Holy Spirit immediately drives him out into the wilderness uh, to be tempted. And so we kind of have this immediate activity of the Holy Spirit, right, in Jesus's ministry. Uh, John says that he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. And then when he's baptized, he's anointed by the Holy Spirit, and then the Holy Spirit drives him out uh, into the wilderness to be tempted. And so with all of that, what do we maybe learn in verses 8 to 13 uh, about the baptism of the Spirit? And what does that mean for us as believers today? I don't know how much I would try to, and maybe I'm sure you're going somewhere with this, as to, I kind of see it as more of, what is it saying about Jesus mm-hmm. and how John's baptism, it's external. It's not internal. You feel water. Anybody can put water on you and I can baptize mm-hmm. you. But how do I just, okay, here's the Holy Spirit. We can't dispense the Holy Spirit. And so John was a big deal. I mean, John the Baptist was... um you know, called the greatest of the prophets. Everybody was going out to him. All the people in the regions were getting baptized by him. He would have been, if he was today, he would have been the guy. He'd have been mm-hmm. being downloaded everywhere. Everybody would have known him. He would have been the guy that everybody's reading, even talked about. And yet, this same John saying, listen, all I'm doing is something that's, it's the sign, it's external, and it's promise. But the one coming, it's internal, it's presence it's reality it's the real thing and Mm -hmm. jesus will give you the holy spirit and so the baptism of the holy spirit i would say is not necessarily tied to to water it can Mm -hmm. be but it often is not where he saves us and every believer is indwelt with the holy spirit there's one baptism and it's not the outward cleansing with water first peter 321 it's this inward work of the spirit and regenerating us and cleansing us and that's probably what you're more of what you're getting at is um but i just see that this is more about the the deity of jesus that yeah. he can nobody who else can give the baptism of the holy spirit or right. else can give the sign but he gives the real thing yeah. and it's affirmed from heaven with the voice of the father and the spirit comes down upon him yeah yeah tammy you have anything to add to that well it speaks to the humanity of Jesus, mm-hmm. like he he didn't have to be baptized. He was the Son of God, right? Yeah. But he showed everyone there that he was human. Um, he wasn't in a spirit form. So yeah. I feel like this is the first of many opportunities yeah. that we're going to see where, yes, he touched the leper and he didn't get leprosy, but... He was baptized like um, like a human being. Yeah. Yeah, I had a couple thoughts. I, I mean, I certainly think I don't want at all want to make this passage about, about us primarily or anything like that. Um, but I do think it's striking, um, you know, even to Tammy's point here about his humanity. Um, this is something that, you know, kind of a big, big academic word is kind of what we see here in Jesus's baptism is kind of this eschatological breakthrough, right? We see the... The spiritual kingdom, the fi- this final spiritual kingdom breaking into the now. And so um, when Jesus comes up from the water in his baptism, right, he experiences three things that in Jewish tradition would have signified the inauguration of God's kingdom, right? The, the heavens were opened, uh, the spirit descended, and this heavenly voice spoke, right? And so these moments kind of coming together tell us, in Jesus's baptism, that he is the more powerful one who was who was to come, the one promised in the Old Testament, the inaugurator of God's kingdom. And so I think, you know, when we then are baptized with Jesus's baptism, we identify with him in his baptism and we become citizens of his kingdom, right? Like that's our, um, we become members of his kingdom. And then we see the same spirit, which baptizes, um, you know, anoints Jesus that indwells us you know, not only gifts us, but we see for Jesus that it strengthened him to face temptation, right? Um, and so whatever calling God has on our life, uh, whatever temptation, suffering we may face, uh, we can trust that we're not only gifted by the Holy Spirit, but we're being strengthened and equipped to face this suffering and temptation 
as as Jesus was, right? So, so ben, coming um, yeah. back to that, the, the eschatological breakthrough, is that anywhere else? I mean, you, you name those three yeah. things, like, where, where did you get that? I mean, I, I'm trying to think, where else in the scripture did that ever happen? This is yeah, pretty unique, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and again, I think that's kind of um, with Mark, right, is the kingdom of God is at hand. All of a sudden we have, you know, the, I think the Old Testament expectation was that when the kingdom of God came, it would be this happening in finality, right? This They expected all of it to happen at once, but kind of one of the analogies that we use is, uh, you know, the kingdom of God, uh, we can view it like a mountain range, right? Where some things that were expected um, happen now, and but there are things in the distance still that are that are to come. And so we see Jesus coming and announcing the kingdom of God is at hand. But when that happens, right, the heavens open, the voice comes down, and we see something not of this world breaking in yeah. to the present, right? Um, so, yeah, and I think that's just encouraging. And again, we were talking about this earlier. Jesus goes out into the wilderness with the wild animals, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And his audience, of course, would have known wild animals as a real threat under Roman persecution. And so I think it's just a message to us that, you know, uh, Jesus, the baptized one, does not run from suffering and temptation. And we can trust mm -hmm. that as we're baptized uh, in him, that we will be empowered with the same spirit to face persecution and suffering and trial and temptation. So I think, you know, this is a great encouragement to us as we see Jesus go into battle, more or less, that we can know that we'll be equipped for spiritual it's warfare interesting. Well. My, my take on the, the wild beast was a little different than I hadn't thought of it in terms of persecution. I was thinking more of the the picture of the, in the Old Testament of how the wilderness was a really scary yeah. place. And Jesus is thrust out into the wilderness. And you have all of this language in, in Isaiah in particular that um, about the wilderness yeah. and how when the kingdom comes, the wilderness all of a sudden is not going to be barren anymore. It's going to be fruitful and the animals are going to get along. Yeah. And is this like the picture of when I'm restoring the kingdom, this is a lot bigger. This is, right. this is um, everything. And there's an interesting verse in Isaiah 43 where um, he's referring to the Exodus. Um, but then he says, because um, he says, thus says the Lord in verse 16, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. So he's talking about the first exodus. But he says, behold, I'm doing a new thing. Here's the new exodus. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness hmm. and rivers in the desert. The wild beast will honor me the jackals and the ostriches for I for I give water in the wilderness rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people and so I kind of see that mm. that Mark is alluding to this that this is the second exodus that Jesus is now going back through the Jordan River back over into now he's going to take us back through this uh, period where Israel failed and he's going to take us through that journey and he's going to accomplish it yeah. for us do you think that's a connection his Gentile audience could have made? That's a good question. But yeah. I, I do think that um, he is certainly quoting the Old Testament a yeah. lot more than he gets credit for. Like yeah. uh, even at the beginning here, he's quoting yeah. Malachi 3 and Isaiah 40. And so I think as they would grow in their understanding, sure. it's kind of like at first they might not catch that. But yeah. then as they start to grow in reading the scriptures, the, I mean... It's just now connecting for me. Yeah. I've been preaching. Yeah. I preached the whole gospel of Mark and didn't see this before. Yeah. And of course, so. there, I mean, and of course, there could be double meanings and, you know, uh, connecting, drawing them in on one level and then seeing the deeper meaning um, of the new Exodus and so on. Um, so let's uh, talk a little bit about. So he comes out uh, out of the wilderness. And, you know, this is what's so great about Mark is he gets right to work. Right. So comes out of the wilderness and boom, verses 14 and 15. Uh, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So how do you all think, uh, Becca, let's start with you. How ought we to understand Jesus's teaching on uh, the gospel of the kingdom of God? Um, well, I guess hmm, he is, I mean, his pronouncement there is saying the time has come 
in a way, right? He is bringing it. Uh, all your prophecies are being fulfilled, but it's just the beginning. And so he's saying it's at hand. Um, it's come. Um, I'm rambling. Sorry. It's okay. Uh, but uh, what? Especially that it's at the beginning. Then all of the rest of his life, all of what Mark is recording, is is showing us what it means um, that the kingdom of come, has come. And so as Jesus heals um, and restores people and forgives them. Um, that's what it means for the kingdom. And so his work is just beginning and that's why he's come. Um, but it's not finished yet. And I think you kind of see that um, as he like silences people, tells them to wait, wait, hold on. You don't fully understand yet. And so here he's proclaiming, this is the full message. This is what you need to know. Um, and that's just, but that's just like the tip of everything else that's coming. Yeah. Um, yeah. Great. Tammy, anything you want to add to that? No, I, I mean, I think he calls it, you know, repent, like repent and believe in the gospel. Like, yeah. If they were, if there was uh, something they were waiting for, yeah. he's telling them that it's now the time is now. Yeah. Well, let me throw out a uh, kind of a follow-up question to both of you. Um, so I think sometimes when we ask uh, today, you know, when we're thinking, you know, what is the what is the nuts and bolts of the gospel, or what is the essence of the gospel? Our first thought is an entrance point to the gospel. And this is a good this is good intuition. Is First Corinthians fifteen right? That uh, the a famous uh, few verses there where Paul says he came, he died for our sins, and was raised again. You know, and that's the nuts and bolts gospel message. But then we, if you think, you know, what where does Mark one fourteen and fifteen fit into that as an entrance to the gospel? you know, um, where he, Jesus proclaims this gospel of the kingdom of God. Uh, how do we, how could we maybe uh, align first Corinthians 15, right? With Mark chapter one and really the, the whole gospel of Mark. Um, how do those two fit together? Do you think? It Mark is, I mean, like what you just said, the gospel story, quote unquote, mm -hmm. in 1 Corinthians 15, um, we're going to see it played out in live form mm -hmm. here. We're going to see him be worthy of our attention and worthy of our adoration. We're going to see his purity. We're going to see him as the son of God, you know, the son of man that is perfect and unable to be tainted by the sins of those around him. Mm -hmm. We're going to see the compassion. We're going to see all those elements that make him our savior. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I would say, I guess our emphasis can often be on, on what we're called to do in response, but the gospel is really, um, is really Jesus. And so when he's saying the kingdom of God is at hand, it's, he's the one. And so when we're sharing, um, with somebody what the gospel is we should be sharing like you said he demonstrates it throughout the whole the whole gospel and that's because it's a revealing of who jesus is the son yeah. of god yeah i think um this is something that i've been you know i, I absolutely want to you know protect the nuts and bolts call to call to faith and um in the gospel that we see you know in first corinthians 15 and sometimes you can get um paranoid that maybe in my gospel presentation, I'm not presenting everything because there's so much when we really think like, what could you be sharing? There's so much, uh, you know, that could be wrapped up in when we're trying to explain the gospel to someone. But I do think, you know, Mark here, um, and of course, Jesus's proclamation about the kingdom of God definitely, um, modifies maybe our understanding of just first Corinthians 15, not in the sense that we're at all rejecting, or denying, you know, Christ's salvific work as we hear about in First Corinthians 15. But I think we're enriching, right, this kind of the nuts and bolts gospel with who Jesus is, right? And we see that this is that the gospel is not only a message about Jesus, <laughs> but it's a message that Jesus himself proclaimed, and it's a life that he lived, and uh, he is the herald of his new kingdom that we come into uh, uh, once we believe his gospel. So. Uh, Charlie, you're, you're sitting over there. You have anything to add on how does, how does Mark one maybe enrich first Corinthians 15? Ben just hit you guys with a unbelievably loaded question <laughs> that is like talked a lot about in yeah. seminary and in, uh, people with their doctorates talking about what is the gospel and is it these, 
And the answer is it's both. It's this narrow gospel, which the narrow part is that he died for sinners. And the theme verse of, of Mark is Mark ten forty five: The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that's certainly the gospel in a nutshell. But in the broader view of the gospel, as he's bringing in this kingdom, you know, as we sing in the Christmas carol, you know, joy to the world, far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, is that creation itself has fallen into sin and that when his kingdom comes, he's restoring everything, not just human beings, not just souls, but our mm -hmm. bodies, but then all of us to relationally to one another, socio sociologically to one another, psychologically to ourselves, but then the whole earth, the whole creation, and even the heavens and the earth are going to be restored as one. So this kingdom is, in the broad, is so much greater than we can mm -hmm. imagine. And so the answer is, what's happening is some people are ignoring the narrow and only yeah. talking about the broad, and they're no longer preaching the gospel of Jesus yeah. is our substitute and died in our place. But then there's others that are uh, only proclaiming the latter. And so Ben's just trying to protect yeah. the both of how are they both in the gospel of John. And yeah. that's... Yeah, no, I think that's right. And, you know, we have to be, especially today, uh, and we'll talk about this more here at the end of our time, but uh, we have to be especially careful today that in our polarized climate, and as we see Christians becoming more polarized, that, you know, if we hear Christians wanting to talk about the gospel of the kingdom, that we don't assume that they're denying the gospel of repentance and faith in Christ, right, that we see. And if we hear someone talking about, you know, the gospel of repentance and faith, that they're not necessarily denying the gospel, but sometimes we can be so quick to be polarized and we hear this and we think they're denying that, or we hear this and they're denying that, and we have to be really careful, but then even for ourselves, make sure that we are taking into account the full picture of what the Bible proclaims about salvation and about what Christ is doing um, in his new kingdom. So uh, we're getting a little bit to the end of our time here, but I do want to kind of, kind of rapid fire a few questions um, that we had prepared for this podcast uh, because they're all sort of related. So three things happen uh, after Je uh, Jesus is baptized um, after verse 15. So he calls his first disciples, right? He heals a man with an unclean spirit, and then he heals many who are sick and possessed with demons. So what do these three episodes taken together, tell us about the kingdom of God. Tammy. There's a lot of my thoughts that came to my mind, but one of the things that I realized is it involved mankind. It mm -hmm. involved others. It was not him walking in, clearing the way on the red carpet and don't touch me, can't touch this. You know, it yeah. was him. He called people to help him. He yeah. didn't need that. Yeah. He he healed people. You know, all those things you just said involved other people. Yeah. Yeah. Becca, what do you think? Um, I guess it's a it's a call to change, right? He calls the disciples and they're they're doing this mm -hmm. one work and now all of a sudden their work is something completely different. And then um people are ill, they're sick, they're unclean, and he's making them clean and pure and healthy. Um yeah. and so it's just it's just a reversal. It's a Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think we get a big snapshot of what his kingdom is like, right, in these first few episodes. So we see that Jesus is absolute Lord over his kingdom. He has authority to call people to himself. He has authority over darkness and demons, and mm -hmm. he has the authority over the natural order of the world, right, with those who are sick. And then, uh, of course, we learn that he's reversing, as you said, Becca, he's reversing the unnatural fallen order of the world, right? He gives people a renewed sense of, sense of purpose in following him. Um, he pushes back these forces of darkness and then he's undoing the effects of the fall by healing the sick. And so we really see that Jesus is the Lord over his kingdom. And we'll get to this in a second. But then as followers, what does it look like then for us to submit to this, uh, this uh, Lord over the kingdom? So uh, a couple more quick questions. Uh, there's two things that might surprise us at the end of chapter one. Uh, first, that he doesn't stay long in Galilee, right? Even when people are looking for him, he doesn't stay long. And second, he instructs the leper not to tell anyone, which was actually a big theme that we kind of overlooked uh, when we were talking about themes earlier. But there's this, uh, sometimes it's called the secrecy of Mark, right? Like, why is he so frequently telling people not to tell anyone about him, right? He even tells the demons not to utter a word, right, and to remain silent. Um, so he doesn't stay long in Galilee. 
he instructs the leper not to tell anyone uh, about him being healed. So what's going on and what do we learn about Jesus's priorities? And Charlie, we'll start with you on this. What do we learn about Jesus's priorities? Sure. Here? Well, one of the things that people say today to us is, you know, I really don't want to hear a sermon. I just want to see it in action. I just want, we just need to love people and, you know, who's really going to be changed by proclamation or preaching. What we need is, is people just to do, uh, you know, preach the gospel at all times if necessary, use words. And what we see is that Jesus's priority actually is proclamation, um, even over miracles. The miracles uh, were important as they verified uh, who he was, and it shows his compassion, and he is bringing in the kingdom that way. But it's it's primarily it's his message. That's what he has come to do, and he is a prophet, mm-hmm. priest, and king. And so his prophetic message must get out. And he doesn't want the devil. I don't want you and I don't need you to tell the message. So he tells him to be muzzled the same way he calms the storm. He shuts up this person and he's telling people the one commandment we really like actually is Presbyterians is don't tell anybody. You know, we we, we kind of like that. <laughs> oof, <laughs> oof. I'm just dagger. Yeah. Well, we feel comfortable with that. Don't tell anybody. But he, um, I think it's because the lines are so big at his door that if, this gets out that all people are going to want is the healing and not to hear the bigger message. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder too, if part of that is he didn't want a false message about himself getting out. Right. So that he's only a miracle worker or anything, but you know, really that you can't, you can't know him apart from the suffering servant who came not to be served, but to serve. And boy, we need to hear that today because there's so much of, you know, the best life now and, and yeah. faith healing kind of stuff. Yeah. One thing that I thought was interesting um, when I was studying this and looking more into this is, uh, you know, when he says that everyone's looking for you, right? Um, when the disciples tell him that uh, apparently this, this Greek word for looking for uh, occurs 10 times in Mark and each time it has a negative connotation. Uh, so the first two times it refers to interference with his ministry the next two refer to disbelief and faith, faithlessness, and remaining occurrences refer to attempts to kill Jesus. So in this sense, if we you know see that pattern in Mark, uh, looking for you is really not in a good way, but really more uh, perhaps to determine and control Jesus than to submit and follow, and maybe wanting to capitalize on his miracle working ministry um, uh, and not really to as a looking for to follow you in a positive sense do you know what the word is offhand i do not i'd have to to look it up you have to look it up but um well uh, then we also see uh we see that mark um begins um his story uh with jesus on the inside and the leper on the outside and i think one of those beautiful things here at the end of chapter one is there's a reversal right where uh, jesus is outside in lonely places and the leper has now been restored and can come inside right to the community and so even early in his ministry, Jesus is an outsider in society. Uh, Mark casts him in the role of the servant Lord who bears the iniquities of others and whose bearing of them causes him to be numbered with their transgressors. So in the last couple of minutes that we have here, uh, I'd be curious to hear from uh, each of you. What do you think it looks like today for us as Christians to submit ourselves to the Lordship of Christ and his kingdom? And what might be um, specific areas that Christians today struggle with this in our context? What what areas do Christians tend to struggle with really submitting their lives to the Lordship of Christ? Becca, we'll start with you. Yeah, well, I think we have difficulty submitting just in general. Um, yeah. We tend to think of our understanding of things that happened in our experience as like the ultimate testament to reality and so when we submit to the lordship of christ we're saying no this what the gospel tells us what the bible tells us is our ultimate reality and i think especially right now that's difficult in like political um issues and gender identity things like that where they're hot topics and we want to go based on what feels good and what feels right or our own experiences and understanding yeah yeah. Tammy, what do you think? Well, the lordship of Christ implies 
that there is uh, someone I answer to. Mm-hmm. And I don't like that. Yeah. Just humanly, I want to be my own boss. I want to I want to think that my way is the best way, whether it's in my home or in my friendships or even in the way I study God's word. You know, I just um, I think it's my pride that is attacked here by yeah. being told that I need to be a part of the kingdom. I am a part and I'm submitting to the lordship of Christ. It goes against the the way and when i first answered this question i wrote we and it felt very safe (laughs) and then i rewrote it because i thought no let's just let's just you know apply this a little bit so it convicts me um because i i don't want to think that i have to answer to someone but i do i i definitely do and mark shows us that yeah absolutely charlie what do you think i think that was really helpful tammy of applying it to ourselves you know but the C.S. Lewis quote I've been using a bunch about the kingdom where he says, enemy occupied territory, that is what this world is. Christianity is a story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise. And he's calling us all to take part in the great campaign of sabotage. Hmm. And I, as we hmm. think about the kingdom, we've been rescued from a kingdom of darkness. And what we've been rescued from, what we see in the greater picture of scripture is... Uh, the the bitterness, the lust, and the anger, and the pride, those mm-hmm. are really kind of the hallmark signs of the kingdom of darkness. He works through lust, he works through bitterness, he works through anger and selfish pride. And so all of those things that are just so natural to our flesh, we've been deported we've been rescued from that and yeah. and taken out of that and brought into this kingdom of light and we're to find out what is good right and true and so we're to live in the light and all those imagery but we're to take part in this great campaign of sabotage that we're to put the flesh to death yeah. um, and so you know every part of me in my flesh still wants to be lord and so it's a constant you know, I'm constantly crawling off the table as this living sacrifice mm-hmm. that has to get back on the table. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of my favorite, uh, Kashu, where did I hear that first quote though, is, uh, you know, the problem with living sacrifices is we have a habit of getting off the altar. Um, yeah, I had a couple, uh, thoughts on this kind of related maybe even more to, uh, our cultural climate right now. And, um, you know, as, as Tammy mm-hmm. indicated, you know, I, I need to see myself in these, the, both these areas I'm about to say, and I definitely do see myself in both these areas, but, uh, I think obviously this is something that has been increasingly more difficult during COVID and quarantine. Right. Um, and I think one area that we're all struggling to, uh, submit to the Lord is with our preferences and desires right now, uh, with how things should be right during quarantine. Mm. Um, and so with everything going on right now, I think it's especially easy to feel, apathetic or really just uh, selfish about our time and our desires. And uh, one way that I've felt that and one way that I've seen that is, you know, Christians saying, you know, I don't like Zoom, so I'm not going to come on. Um, I'm not going to be a part of groups anymore. Uh, or uh, I don't like online worship, so I just won't watch. Or um, if you're going to make me wear a mask, then I'm not going to come. Or, you know, if everyone's not going to wear a mask, then I'm not going to come. And Um, and like, of course, you know, like none of this is ideal, right? None of the life that we are living right now is ideal. None of the ministry that we are doing right now is ideal. None of us really like leading zoom studies. None of us like having everyone attending at home, but like, this is what we got, right? Like, this is what we got. And one of the marks of, and that's, you know, for me, like I don't enjoy (laughs) leading stuff on zoom. It's hard. It can be really, really hard, but you know, if Christ is Lord over our lives, then one of the foundational marks of a Christian is conforming our life to be deeply involved, you know, in a local church. Right. And so if we cast that aside because of apathy or strong opinions and preferences about how things ought to be right now, then we're really in danger of setting ourselves up as like Lord over our lives during this season. Right. And not submitting to this is like, this is what the Lord has for us right now. Right. And just submitting to that and being a part of it and not just kind of, all right, you know, washing our hands of it and bowing out. So that's one area. And then another area, and I don't want to like step on any toes here, but Becca, you mentioned it is with, you know, the political discourse and social policy right now. And I just was reminded of this because I was reading a little book with another church member uh, yesterday 
Uh, it's a great new book uh, by Jonathan Lehman and Annie Nacelli called uh, How Can I Love Church Members with Different Politics? And we were just reading kind of the first half of that. And one of the reasons that they gave that is just so true of why it can be so difficult to love people who have different politics than us is because of our self-justifying nature, right? And this is, I think Tammy, you were hitting on this, right? Of setting ourselves up mm -hmm. as like Lord over our lives. And we want to be right. But as citizens of a heavenly kingdom, we are to submit ourselves first and foremost, right? To King Jesus and his kingdom, which is not um, of this world. And so when we give ourselves to this earthly kingdom, and we should, right? We want to be salt and light in this world. Um, we need wisdom from above. Um, and so I think that means that Christians in particular ought to be marked by a special kind of graciousness and humility in recognizing that we don't always know what the Lord is up to. And we don't always know how to apply kingdom principles to earthly situations. Um, but we know that we're ambassadors of the king. We want to reset, represent him um, as best as we could. And so, you know, our opinions about politics and social policy, they might be right and they might be godly and they might be informed by love of God and love of neighbor. But we should also be mindful that they might also be informed by self-justifying tendencies, right? And so a humility, a humility about that uh, and not uh, always thinking that we're in the right um, and just really, yeah, being gracious and, and humble in our discourse and uh, hopefully being unique ambassadors of the kingdom. And uh, remember, the kingdom isn't coming through right. the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. So... Um, there's a lot more that we could talk about here. I had a couple more questions, but we're running out of time. So uh, thank you all for listening to this first episode of the podcast. We'll have episode two coming out uh, same day. Tune in to, uh, for Mark chapter two, and we will end that discussion, I think, with uh, another area of our lives that we tend to, to struggle with, which is uh, keeping the Lord's day and the Sabbath. And what does that mean uh, for Christians today? So join us for episode two, chapter two of the gospel of Mark. And uh, we look forward to uh, working with you then. Take care.